Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. Good morning. It's good to be here. It's good to be here with you all. It's good to see you, kind of, but the minute I put my glasses on, I won't be able to see you. Um, I know so many of you, and then we have so many new people that there's a lot of you that don't know who I am. Um, My name is Barbara Hildegard. It's tattooed on my left arm. Not Barbara, but Hildegard is. uh, Sanofsky, and I was once a part of lead team here, but I retired at the end of October, and I'm living the leisure life beating my husband at Scrabble right now. But I wanted to tell you just a couple things about myself. I used to be cuter. (laughs) Okay, and I use humor to make myself more comfortable. (laughs) And when I was young, I was going to East Los Angeles Community College. Shout out to Jennifer. Um, I had a cue stick that came apart, and it lived in a little leather case. And I took it with me wherever I went because I had a job in a pool hall and I had a friend named Rodney Hayashi. And after my work was over, somewhere between midnight and 2 a.m., we would haunt the garages of Los Angeles and we would play pool with people in their garages for cash. (laughs) I just felt like you needed to know something about me that maybe you've never considered. So not only am I an ex-pastor, well, I'm, you're never an ex-pastor, but I, I'm also an ex-pool shark. <laughs> but I'm not an ex-cutie pie. Because <laughs> cute knows no end, right? <laughs> we just keep on going. Um, We've been in a series here at Long Beach Christian Fellowship called Learning to Live and Love Like Jesus because that's what it says on our sign outside. And we actually are taking it seriously, darn it. So um, we've been in this series and you've heard all kinds of really great teaching about Jesus and about what that might mean. In the past couple of weeks, we've talked about forgiveness. And last week, Catherine beautifully brought a teaching on grieving. And uh, so this morning... Because it's Holy Week, because it's Palm Sunday, because Jesus is taking that walk that we get to remember into Jerusalem, we're going to talk about suffering. But I'm going to talk about suffering from um, only one perspective because it's so interesting. Every one of these topics could be like a three-year study. It could be a six-month series easily if we just took forgiveness If we just took grief, if we just took one of those, we could speak on it, um, you know, almost constantly. So today, we're only going to get a slice of suffering. Um, Yeah, thank thank you, Jesus, (laughs) that you're not going to give us any more right now anyway. But actually, I'm going to start with an assertion that everybody in this room, even if you're really happy and life is really going well, if you looked at your heart... There's suffering that lives there. We're going to begin with a scripture, and the scripture that I chose to teach this morning is a scripture 
on comfort. And uh, after I start talking, which I haven't yet, even though you think I have, um, after I start really talking the message that I want to give you this morning, uh, I am going to get to comfort, so I just want you to know that. But I'm going to take a route before we get there. But let's, um, let's look at the scripture, and uh, you can read it with me if you like. This is the amplified version, because I just felt like that was what we should read this morning. Blessed, gratefully praised and adored, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts and encourages us in every trouble so that we will be able to comfort and encourage those who are in any kind of trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as Christ's sufferings are ours in abundance, as they overflow to his followers, so also comfort, our reassurance, our encouragement, our consolation is abundant through Christ. It is truly more than enough to endure what we must. The word of the Lord. And like I said, we are going to get to comfort. So, I have a lot of pages. At a certain point, Pastor Ryan, will you give me the high five that says, cut it off or we're going to drag you out of here so that I know what to get rid of? Um, we're walking into Jerusalem with Jesus. Yes, Ryan? Okay, thank you. <laughs> because really I've got way too much, you guys. Um, we're walking into Jerusalem with Jesus, and he is suffering. And he is with us in our suffering. And I'm going to ask that we don't just simply equate physical pain with suffering. Because while the two are very closely related, they're not identical. Pain is mainly objective, external, typically social or physical. And we kind of look at pain primarily as an event. Oh, my arm hurts. My hip hurts. My back hurts. It's an event. Suffering, on the other hand, is primarily subjective, internal. It's typically mental or emotional. We look at suffering primarily as an experience. Not all pain causes suffering. And just as we might have pain without suffering, we might also have suffering without pain. The difference is that suffering is something we assign to a situation, to um, a circumstance. It's the meaning that we assign to our pain. And really the only way to learn whether or not suffering is present is to ask ourselves, am I suffering? And it's so good to name what's real. It's so good to name what's really true for us. So we can ask ourselves that question. Can you ask yourself that question right now? Am I suffering? Let's just see what comes up. We also can ask other people if they're suffering. And in a crazy way, that's, that's part of what church is meant to do. Now, I want to tell you a story of one of my greatest sufferings. Again, many of you know me. 
and you've probably heard that I have six children, but I don't talk a lot about my oldest son. His name is Rick. His name is Richard J. Um, he was born in 1969. I was 20 years old. He was the cutest kid in the whole wide world. <laughs> Blonde curly hair. Fell on his teeth right away, so he always had dead teeth somehow. Um, adorable, just really, really cute. A really fun, loving, laughing boy. But he had this really awful mom. And that was me, and that is true. I was not a good mom. I was really more into myself, my life, what I wanted, what I needed, than I was into raising a beautiful blonde-haired boy. And I made a lot of mistakes with him, so many mistakes. And he grew. And about the time that he was 12, maybe, maybe a little before that, I, my life started to get in order just a little bit. One of the things that happened around that season is that I started, um, I started coming to church. I didn't have a faith in Jesus yet, but I was going to church. I was doing the right thing. And in the midst of all that, uh, I felt a desire to baptize my children. And at the, at, by then, I had another daughter. I had two children. And so Rick and my daughter Stacy were baptized at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Rossmore. And uh, I remember speaking to the pastor there, um, telling him that I didn't believe so many of the things that he would say. And he said this to me. He said, it doesn't matter what you believe as much that you believe in Jesus Christ. That was wise. <laughs> that was so wise of him to say that to me. Um, about the time that Rick was 11, 12 years of age, he started using drugs. And he continued to use drugs. It's a long ways since 1979, 1980, and my son still uses drugs. But the story is not about his drug use. It's about a relational breakdown, and it's about suffering. There came a time when his daughter was going to be spending a summer with John and I, and her mother had asked me not to let her talk to Rick, my son, because Rick was uh, very sketchy. He had not paid any child support, and he upset her every time that he would talk to her. And, I, and she said to me, if you let her talk to him, you can't have her anymore. So I said, I promise. I want Hannah. I want my granddaughter in my life. I won't let her talk to Rick. And Rick called, and uh, Hannah at the time was maybe, maybe 10. She's 24, going to be 25 on the 11th. And when Rick called, uh, first my husband told him that he could not talk to Hannah. And then I got on the phone with him. And he came unglued at me. Uh, he felt that I was betraying him, that I was choosing the mother over him. Um, a lot of ugly language. And um, he's never spoken to me since. And that is a suffering because he's still my son, because he's still my little blonde boy, and I still have a lot I want to make up to him 
for having been the mom that I was when he was a boy. And I don't have the opportunity. You know, I want to lobby. I want to lobby for goodness. I want to lobby for God. I want to lobby for relationship. And because he will not see me, speak to me, receive my phone calls, I am unable to do that with him. I'm going to say something else. It doesn't matter that he uses drugs. That would not ever take my love away from him. It would not ever cause me to judge him because I know how much he hurts. So that's something. That is the suffering that is with me always, always. It never goes away. It's always there, somewhere. No matter how happy I am, and I can be happy. No matter how extroverted, because I can be extroverted. Surprise. Uh, yeah, I always suffer for the loss of my son and my relationship with him. And yet, I cannot compare. I cannot compare my suffering to yours. And you cannot compare yours to mine. All suffering is worthy. All suffering is honored by God. We are meant, called to suffer well. Whether it is helpful or a hindrance, suffering becomes a communal concern biblically, especially in the Old Testament. Suffering people, we, we cry out to God because God is mighty. Witness some. 13, that we read at the beginning. How long, oh Lord? Oh my gosh, I've asked that question so many times. How old do I have to be? How old does Rick have to be before I can hold him again? I can tell him I love him again? Because those words have been spoken. Can I ask for forgiveness again? Because maybe that's the work of a lifetime. How long? How long, oh Lord? We are called to cry that out. In the Bible, suffering, pain was expressed vocally, and it was expressed communally. It ranged from inarticulate groanings to artistically written compositions, like the Psalms, like songs, like poems, like spoken word. It was even intended, our, our cries of end this suffering when, O Lord, is actually intended to teach one another. Real words matter when we face real pain. Anger, by the way, is even included in that, which I love as an Enneagram 8. So, okay. God suffers, and that's something, you know, that we have to consider. Um, and there is actually a theology of suffering that the Word gives us. It's evident throughout the testimony of all the Scriptures, not just in the passion of the crucified Christ, which is what we are celebrating this week, we are meant, and passion, by the way, means suffering. And we are meant here at LBCF to have and be able to articulate a theology of suffering. The book of Job shows us that there are two ways that we can respond to suffering. One curses God because of suffering. And one praises God. And guess what? We can do both of those ways at the same time. God is not offended by our cursing him. 
He's going to receive that because he knows why we curse. He, he knows the depth of our despair. And then there's that relationship to Jesus, the scarred lamb, the scarred lamb on the throne in Revelation. There is this relationship of that scarred lamb to us, his suffering sheep. This man of sorrows, Isaiah 53.3, does not ask us to go where he's never been. He not only died for us, he is willing to suffer with us. I'm going to quote a lot from a guy by the name of Nicholas Wolterstorff because he wrote a book called Lament for a Son about suffering and about grief. And this is what he says about Jesus. Perhaps his sorrow is his splendor. Perhaps our sorrow is our splendor. Maybe it's actually our sorrow that makes us shiny and attractive to one another. Maybe that's, maybe that's, maybe that's actually so. Luke 22 says this. The setting is a garden in Gethsemane. Jesus is in painful emotional distress. Earlier in Luke, he's already predicted that he would go to Jerusalem, he would suffer mockery, abuse, and death. He moves towards God in his fear, but notice he's fearful. He seeks relief, but his prayer is not save me at any cost. He asks his father to remove this cup from me. Then he chooses to be faithful, not, not my will, but yours, God. Oh, man, I hate that prayer. Don't you hate saying that? I'm, I'm so much more comfortable asking for the cup to be gone. <laughs> Please remove this. How hard it is to say your will. There's something beautiful in the suffering of aging. It's kind of like, we're kind of like cars where we have like built-in obsolescence. So, so seasons come where, it, you know the way Jason was talking about his father. Things just don't work the way they did. Parts need to be replaced if possible. Sometimes it isn't possible. Can we in those places say, your will, not mine? Can we say that? In the same way that we want to imitate Jesus' positive emotions, and we love these positive emotions, love, joy, peaceful, patience. No, not patience so much. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> but still, those are good things, right? Self-control. Um Chocolate cookies, self-control, oxymoron. Okay. Um, we need to consider imitating the negative emotions of Jesus as well. Emotions like sadness, like appropriate anger, like discontent, because those are also parts of learning to live and love like Jesus did. Uh, and now I'm going to move into a little bit of a rebuke <laughs> to the church. <laughs> because really what we've learned in church is that somber doesn't sell. We're told, tradition asks us to sin and repent, to lament and die in our silent privacy. Let's not bring anyone else into that. 
we're uneasy with engaging suffering. And when I say we, I'm speaking the church, big church. We're uneasy with expressing deep personal pain. Obviously, this is a, a general paintbrush. This does not true of each of us. And anger in corporate worship has not been welcome. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed that. And we all know that week after week, we're standing next to or near to someone who is suffering. And we say nothing. And people with hearts crippled by profound pain are forced, not really forced, but definitely um, encouraged <laughs> to stand and clap week after week with little mention of the dark trials that fill their hearts. Where is the room for that? When we don't mention our suffering and we shun our own grief, I'm going to call that spiritual hypocrisy because that's not what the Bible asks of us. One-third of the Psalter, about 67 Psalms, contains laments. And when we lament, we're comforted. I told you I'd get there, kind of, right? When we lament, we're comforted. So when I tell you the story of my son and I tell you that I miss him every day of my life, just the fact that you're hearing me, you're bearing my burden because I've shared it with you, like it or not. And I'm comforted. Now you all know how I feel. Lament is needed because life is not always shalom. Shalom is the goal. Nothing broken, nothing missing. That's the goal. Without pain, our praises are thin and half-hearted. But without praises, our suffering and pain seem fatal and unbearable. When both are taught. And I, I like to think that we're actually better at that than your average church. That, we, we do, that there is room here at Long Beach Christian Fellowship for our sadness and our mourning. I'm, I'm definitely lobbying for more room because I think that's necessary, especially in the seasons that we have been in. So when both are taught, we're invited into joy and suffering, which balances us. Lament is the language of suffering, the voicing of suffering. And behind lament are our tears and our grief. I'm going to quote a man by the name of Phil Zilla. He says this, The Bible gives us permission to say how bad things really are and to move beyond silent acquiescence to articulate our pain. The disintegration of meaning that comes with suffering is slowly restored in the movement from silence. To lament. Suffering is a mystery because I'm going to also say that it's really connected to love and love is connected to comfort. Think about it. If we don't love, we don't suffer much. If we don't love ourselves, why, why bother, right? We serve a God, Jesus, who loved, who loves each of us so much that he chose the cross. And just like us, he didn't want to go. 
Nicholas Wolters Storff again, suffering is a mystery as deep as any in our existence. Suffering keeps its face hidden while making itself known to each of us. We are one in suffering. Suffering is for the loving. This, said Jesus, is the command of the Holy One. <clears throat> you should love your neighbor as yourself. In commanding us to love, God invites us. God invites us to suffer. Because love hurts, right? That's a song I know. I'm going to read Walter Storff again because he was just so good. Suffering is a shout of no by one's whole existence to that thing or things that cause us to suffer. And sometimes, not always, sometimes, when the cry is intense, when our no comes from our toes and our gut and our heart and our feelings and all of the emotions that are swirling, when it comes from that place, when we can say it with defiance, with anger, with fear, with, with, with everything in us, when we can say the no that loudly and with that much conviction, then, then, there is a radiance which appears as a glow of courage, of love, of insight of selflessness, of faith. And in that radiance, we see what humanity is meant to be. The radiance which emerges from acquaintance with grief is a blessing to others. And that's crazy, and it's perplexing, and it's true. So how do we treasure the radiance while struggling against what brought it about. How can we thank God for suffering, suffering while asking for its removal? I'm thinking of childbirth here. Some of us in this room have given birth to children, some of us to more than one child. The pain is crazy. The suffering feels unbearable. It can last for weeks. It can last for days. It For sure, it lasts for multiple hours. And then, love crazy love. The child is born. Every moment of the suffering was worth it. Every moment. What if that's God's economy? What if everything that we suffer is really worth it in, in crazy, unthought-of ways? And I kind of believe that it is. But I can only believe that when I I'm willing to be God's beloved when I can allow God to love me. My ministry really comes out of my brokenness, and so does yours. The foundation of my ministry is all the things I do badly. <laughs> my broken places. I don't want to go too long, and I'm worried that I'm going to do that. I'm going to beat the drum of community here, and I'm going to say that none of us ever, ever, ever should suffer alone. 
We need to suffer together. <laughs> we need to cry out together. We need to lament as a people. And then ultimately we accept that suffering. We consider it. We learn from it. We learn to grieve. We learn to forgive. And then to love better than we have be ever, ever, ever have before. I just cut a whole bunch. Just drew a line through it. I'm going now. <laughs> because this is really important. This is a Walter Brueggemann quote. And I don't, if you don't know him, you need to read him. He's crazy. Crazy heady, but amazing. He says this, Jesus is the embodiment of the suffering love of God that confounds the wisdom of the world. It is from that reality of Jesus that the followers of Jesus bear and perform the knowledge of God rooted in our own suffering, and thereby we contradict the world. This is what makes us people of the way. It's our suffering. We contradict the world. He says that suffering is the key work of the church. And that makes me cry because I hate it and I love it all at the same time. <laughs> this brings us to love and doing justice. People, family, brothers and sisters. The suffering of the world receives our attention not only in the big sweep of world issues, but the whole world's closest at hand, those suffering who are everywhere, who are present in this room, who are watching on live stream, who catch us later on YouTube. All of us, there's suffering, and we need to be there for one another. When we suffer well and love well, we bear a kind of power. Don't we love that word? Write that one down. P-O-W-E-R. We bear power. That contradicts and trumps the normal power of the world. And we're meant to use and acknowledge that power, by the way. It is the power of love and comfort and hope. Those things are powerful in the crazy world in which we live. It's how they will know that we're Christians, right? We call that the power of compassion. It is the ability to move towards suffering rather than away from it, which is not our natural inclination. <laughs> but our power and our mandate is to become the compassionate community of God. In fact, what if LBCF were known as the community of compassionate protest. Do you not love that? Could we be a community of compassionate protest where we say no and yes and trust? Ah, oh, it's crazy. Suffering is also collective. Uh, just get rid of that. Um, I just want to talk briefly about Monday's shooting in Nashville because that is a great example of collective suffering because a nation suffered hearing about that. Children were, children were shot by a trans woman who had 
huge hurt from the church and a ton of emotional instability. And she was sold seven guns in three days and no background check. I mean, there's just so much. But the suffering is everywhere. The suffering is for the people that were hurt. The suffering is for the people who heard the news. The suffering is for the people that died. The suffering is for the people that watched. The suffering is for the woman who actually killed those six people. Nadia Boltz Weber um, did a really great little blog where she talked about her nephew who had been apprehended by the police and arrested and uh, it was all over the newspapers about what a bad guy he was and her point was she knew him differently. He was her nephew. He was a person as well. I have a tendency to want to make the shooter or shooters as ugly, horrible people, but they're hurt, suffering people as well. And somehow, could the compassion of the church, that crazy compassion that is radical and crazy, could it extend also to the people that do the hurting? Could, could our compassion really be that big? Could we be willing to suffer even with the people that create suffering? I don't know. feels radical. And, and in the craziest way ever, it feels right as well. And now let's, let's go to the comfort part. Because it's so central to the scripture that I read in 2 Corinthians. Look at the word. Look at compassion with suffering. Let's look at comfort with forte, strength. I always thought that comfort was like small and like petting a kitty. You know, oh, sweetie pie. No, no, no. Comfort is strong. Comfort can come from the no that I'm asking us to shout out loud. Comfort is the strength of God. Comfort is full of his love. Comfort is full of compassion. Comfort is lacking judgment. So many crazy things. Guess what the Greek word for comfort is? Periklesis, Holy Spirit. So what if comfort is also about lament? And again, lament is meant to be communal with others, others who listen. And we lament to God because whom else have we on heaven and on earth? And a lament is a complaint. So when we complain and we acknowledge that we are lamenting, we're speaking what we long for. We're speaking out what is not right with the world. And in the midst of all of that, we find ourselves strangely comforted. We find ourselves right back to love. Could we be the people that welcome painful stories and uncomfortable questions? A couple of weeks ago, Danny taught on forgiveness, and I closed, and I said, well, there are people I haven't forgiven, like my father, who molested me. I didn't quite use that language, but for for brevity's sake, that's what I'm saying right now. And then um, after I was done with closing and you guys all went home, Gordon, who is a man new to our community, he came to me and he said, I just want you to know that if you need to shout or scream or yell or cry, or talk about it. I'm available for you. Do you hear the comfort in those words? 
Do you hear that he didn't need me to be a caricature of a pastoral woman type? He just said, I am willing to be here for you. I can take it. We all can. We can be that for one another here, for our family that we live with near work, play. We can be that. I'm going to read one last quote, and then I'm going to end, and we're going to move into communion. And this quote is from James Finley, who is a teacher with Richard Rohr. He says this, Love protects us from nothing, even as it unexplainably sustains us in all things. Access to this love is not limited by our finite ideas of what it is or what it should be. Rather, this love overwhelms our abilities to comprehend it as it is so unexplainably, as it so unexplainably sustains us and continues to draw us to itself in all that life might send our way, in all of our sufferings. And then we hope, because while suffering suffocates hope, hope persists in spite of time to come to the table together and I want to invite those who are serving communion to come forward and the band to come forward. What a beautiful opportunity to bring your lament to God. I'm going to ask that you find a person to speak your no or your how long or whatever it is that you need to say or your curses that you find a person to speak them out loud to and then come to the table and receive the love of God, the compassionate, comforting love of God. And we also, we also people, we have a prayer team, and they will be here. They will be willing to pray for you in your suffering and in your joy. Amen.